Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of To Be Determined with Bill and Dan. And to start out, we're going to channel 1980s actress and supermodel Kelly LeBrock, who famously said, Don't hate me because I'm beautiful, which are words you're probably never going to hear again on this show. So, Dan, what are we talking about today? This episode is going to be about the story Inferiority by James Causey, which was first published in Science Stories, issue number four, back in April 1954. It's a story that I'd never seen before, and, you know, despite that, it's a it's an awesome story. It doesn't mean that I've seen all the awesome stories out there. Uh, Causey is one of those people that other authors make reference to having been influenced by, so even though he isn't necessarily the the most popular in terms of our of our general cultural recognition of sci-fi authors. Other authors recognize what he's brought to the table. Yeah, in this particular story, Earth is considering the destruction of an advanced alien society because, well, because we, we don't like it very much. Well, and as so many classic sci-fi stories show, like, where is this advanced civilization? It's Mars. Of course it is. Because apparently they need more than just guitars. <laughs> That's right. They need advanced civilizations. Why don't you bring us in with a little bit of a character introduction? Yeah, I can do that. Uh, let's see, there's two major characters in the story. The first one is named Avila. She's a Martian and an artist and sculptor. We have a guy by the name of Marl Jedson, who is from Earth. He's a military guy and has recently been promoted to the Director of the Imperial Council, which is a really cool-sounding title. Then we have somebody named Kel, who is a quote-unquote untalented Martian painter, um, a character by the name of Mordak, a Martian who runs something called The Converter. And then there's Glax, a Martian toy maker. Now, there's like one or two other characters who show up in the story, but uh, these are pretty much the main ones. Yeah, and the scene opens with uh, the story opens, I should say, with a villa working in her studio and, you know, she's, she's thinking about you know, being in their new village and they're getting ready to have uh, a, a sort of seasonal festival and she's lamenting in her head that she's alone. We don't know why yet. And then she senses something behind her and in walks Marl Jensen, a very quick Little little transition into just the two of them beginning to talk. Right. Apparently, Marl's been gone for five years and in the whole time has been married, which is kind of an odd way to have a marriage, to get married and then take off for five years. But hey, it is what it is. Anyway, he reveals that he and some other people were sent from Earth by the Imperial Council up to Mars in order to absorb their culture, which he notes is an impossible task. And he was also supposed to take a Martian to wife, which is just a great way of getting married in the 1950s. Well, and, and when they were originally sent down to explore, so we, we as, as the story emerges, we get some of the, these, these thoughts or the, these, um, these concepts kind of filled in where Earth met the Martians, recognized that they were... At least on the surface, they seemed to be an advanced civilization. They had these amazing architectural structures, and, and the humans decided to come in and, and check things out and try to figure out, okay, what makes these people tick, and are they worthy adversaries, or what, what needs to happen now? 
Yeah, the story is interesting in that it doesn't really spell out what happens. It's all very indirect references. They talk about 87 people who were displaced or killed, that there was some city that was, as far as we can tell, was nuked by the Earth people, and that some of them were evacuated out to the desert. The, The stupid ones, or the clods, apparently, were all evacuated. But um, all these other great artists and scientists and sculptors died in this giant explosion back in the past. So you end up with this group of people who have been kind of left on their own out in the desert for five years just to see what happens. Marl even says he's there to do an inspection, whatever that means. Yeah, the humans destroyed their, their community, destroyed their, their city that they had built, cast them out into the desert without their, without their greatest artisans, and they wanted to find out, okay, so what's going to happen? Are they going to be able to rebuild their civilization? Are they going to collapse? What's the deal? And they leave them alone for five years. There's not even a hint that they're observing you know, from afar or anything like that. But now he's come back to inspect, to try to find out what have they been up to and how has the experiment fared. Yeah, so as a result of coming down here, they decide to walk through the village and see what's going on. Where Well, the first person they meet on this little inspection tour is an artist by the name of Kel. And he, Kel is an artist. He's a painter. There's a very big difference in the way Marl sees his art and how Avila sees his art. Avila says, oh, Kel's work, it's, he's daubing on the canvas. It's, it's a mere echo of greatness from his father. Marl looks at it and he says, oh my goodness, it's an incredibly beautiful painting that just moves him to tears practically. The colors are so vivid and the subject matter is so great. And Avila's dismissing it as just, you know, a childish piece of work. Yeah, this, the story says, Marl caught his breath. From the half-finished canvas, incredible colors roared. The desert was gold, pure gold, and the canal had a desolate, forlorn look that brought tears. Yeah, and Avila's like, meh, it's okay. Yeah, he's a pointless dauber. So anyway, they keep going through the town. They encounter more and more people, and each one of them, of course, has their own specialization. You've got these great artists. Uh, There's a guy named Mordak who runs this machine called the Converter that apparently can transmute materials from one thing to another. He casually hands Avila this giant chrysolite gemstone as a gift, And he's like, well, it took me seven tries, but I finally got one that's perfect. They see Glax, the toy maker, who's got all these cool things that make all the children happy. These, you know, incredible fireworks displays and music and singing. And you get this idea that it's an artist colony on steroids. And it's unclear at first why it might be that the humans were, well, that they chose to destroy this. I mean, so they, they come across this race of people who are incredibly advanced in their production of, of artist, artistic kinds of creations. And their first thought is, yeah, we got to smash the crap out of this stuff and we've got we to send them out into the desert and see what happens. Right. And after they go through the town, seeing all these people and seeing all the beautiful things, they return to Avila's. And Marl sees this vase that Avila has made. It's an incredibly beautiful thing. He thinks, you know, this makes the Ming Dynasty look like a child's pottery wheel. But that's apparently the last straw for Marl, right? He just launches into this tirade about Martian culture, 
how you've got these brilliant scientists and artists and poets. They never had to fight for anything. Everything was handed to them on a silver platter. He says humanity had to fight and claw their way up in the Martians. There's no predators. They didn't have to worry about any of this stuff. They just were free to invent and add culture and science. Never any pressure placed on them like the humans did. And interesting that in the middle of this, he expresses particular vehemence and, and venom around them being making the choice to be vegetarians. So they've got this lush ecology, this amazing, you know, a, array of things that they could that they could claim for themselves, that they could take, that they could eat, and they choose to be vegetarians. And that is just symbolic of absolute passivity and and really patheticness to to Marl. Yeah, he says. Humanity has a survival instinct and claims that because we have this survival instinct, it's superior to everything else. It's unstoppable. It's the force that's going to launch humans and mankind through the universe while these pesky little artists, you know, they're sitting around on their planet creating art. And what good is that, after all, compared to the greatness of humanity? And in there, in his tirade there, he says, rabbits, all of you, you wouldn't spill a drop of blood to save your entire race. That's why we are greater. That's why we'll go on. And, and so there's this contempt for anybody that isn't as brutal or as warlike or carnivorous as the case may be as the humans. And, and anything that isn't like them is, is, isn't worth being. Exactly. Yeah. Eventually he reveals that, at least this is my reading of it, that the village is just an experiment. They evacuated some people to this little area in the desert to kind of see if they can be you know, brought down to humanity's level to make them tolerable where they're not so great compared to, uh, compared to how the humans are. He makes references earlier to the fact that when the two cultures first ran into each other, our, our painters looked at their paintings and their art and said, oh, God, we can't paint anymore. The poets read the poetry and the poets killed themselves. The scientists went mad trying to figure out and determine what their science was doing. You know, this whole thing about how much greater the Martian society is or, or was. And apparently this, this little village is the last ditch effort to bring them down to our level. And in that scene, he reveals something that contradicts what he had originally said as he arrives on the scene. So when he arrives, he says, it's inspection day. You know, he's the the director of this council or the, the imperial council, and he's come down basically to assess and to pass judgment, and he makes it sound as if it's an official act. And now at this point in the story, he reveals, well, no, nobody knows I'm here. It's just me. I came down myself to to, to see where things are at. And he's obviously absolutely disgusted with everything. And it's clear that he sees no value or, well, that he sees no reason to allow them to continue to exist. And the implication is that he's going to give some order as soon as he gets a chance to do so to just obliterate this this community. And apparently, interestingly enough, there's a there's no time frame on this. He does make reference to the fact that on Earth there's some kind of movement that says, hey, yeah. maybe we shouldn't be, you know, doing these things to the Martians. He says, or he refers to it as a soft, silly, non-interference policy. So apparently he's not real happy with the way things are going on Earth. And he's basically going to do anything he can to figure out some excuse to wipe these people out. A villa asks at some point, you know, remember the bust that I had made of you before? Well, it got broken. And I wonder if you would allow me to do another one. And he's like, oh, well, you know, it's not going to last for long. 
you know the implication again that he's he's gonna he's gonna call for an order and and have them wiped out and she says that's okay you know just could I make another one? It'll only take a few minutes. I've got a new process for doing this. And he is skeptical for just the merest of moments. And he comes over to her and um, she says, please, it's a new process. It'll, you know, 10 minutes. He frowned, cupped her chin in one hand and raised her calm face to his. Martians never lie, he said softly. You really love me in spite of? And she says, that doesn't matter. I want you to I want you near me always. I want nothing else. What a shame you can't hate, he says. And then he strikes a pose. He's like, "Ah, so is this what you want?" And he, he of course strikes this pose of the the violent brutal conqueror and she instead asks him, "No, show a moment of of compassion or humility or or something yeah, along those I think lines." Yeah. She says to look helpless. Look helpless. And so he's like, ah, whatever, because he, he's humoring her at this point. And so her hands pass over some controls on her workspace, and the unexpected comes. This is the turn in the story. It, these these manacles pop out of the wall. He's restrained. She starts this process that apparently turns him into, I think, Onyx, right? Something yeah. like that. And obviously killing him in the process You know, he's struggling to get free. He can't. She transmutes him into a statue, essentially. And then at the very end, she looks at the thing she's created at this stone statue of a human. And she says, he stood frozen forever in the splendid straining attitude. She must put chains on his arms, broken chains, to symbolize the futility and the glory of the human race. After all, he was a man. And that's how the story ends. And again, it's not a very long story. The whole thing is what, maybe eight, ten eight pages? pages? Eight I pages, I think yeah. it is, yeah. And but there's a there's a lot going on, and there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff in the story with you know, themes and um and, and characterizations of humanity versus other kinds of races that we might encounter throughout the galaxy that really connect up with a variety of other, um, you know, sci-fi stories. Yeah. One of the most interesting things that I see in here is the idea that humanity is so insanely jealous of these Martians that they can't stand the idea that there might be another race out there that's better at them than everything. And of course, the title of the story really gives it away, inferiority. It's, you know, humans have a huge inferiority complex and humans decide that, hey, if we can't become that great, that we'll just have to wipe them out, which is a very interesting premise. Of course, it's been one we've seen in other parts of human society where cultures, when they come into contact with each other, can't stand one being better than the other. And it's just who is the most brutal and who has the most weapons that ends up winning and destroying whatever art or science or culture or literature that the losing side had. So it's not something that's totally out of the ordinary. But um, jealousy is not something you see a lot in science fiction as a motivator or the motivating force for, for the story. And one of the, one of the elements of that jealousy, it, it's rooted in this complete lack of arrogance on the part of the Martian culture. Like they seem completely, they're, they're invested in their own art, but they don't compare themselves to anybody else. They don't need to compare themselves to anybody else. They are superior, but they've got no point of comparison themselves. It's the humans 
who create this competition, if you will, between themselves and the Martians. The Martians are just doing what they've always done. And so that makes him even more mad that they're better, but they don't realize that they're better and that they're not insufferably arrogant over it. They're insufferably unarrogant in his opinion. And so that's kind of an interesting take on things as well. Yeah. Do we see that kind of stuff in our own culture? Sure. You know, the petty bully who just, you know, wants to stomp out anything that, you know, well, that the, that the petty bully feels like stomping out. And it's interesting. You think it has something to do with proximity because, well, Mars is right next to Earth. They make some kind of vague reference to where they say, what if we went to another planet? What if we just left? Would that be okay? And that's still not good enough for Marl. They can't just leave. Their mere existence anywhere in the universe is is bad enough. Yeah, and and so they their only solution is to obliterate this this Martian culture. And, you know, and we we've done stories before where we've talked about those first encounters or 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 you know repeating encounters with other cultures and what comes of it. And and it often comes down to war. You know, this is one of those moments where you know here the the humans encounter a culture that is superior to them, but isn't interested in in taking over Earth or getting into a combat of any kind with Earth. They just want to do their thing, and and that's that's not allowable. So here, the humans are completely pictured as the aggressor, and unjustifiably so, but usually we're looking at other races as being in that situation, not humans. So it's an interesting turn on that kind of a, of a theme. And what I would say is even a little more interesting than that is the psychological attitude about Marl when he talks about what makes the human race great. He talks right. about the fight for survival, the need to claw and fang our way up from the up the food chain or something like that. But he makes reference and seems very interested in the idea that humankind can be this violent, amoral species that will lie, hate, cheat, steal, kill, do all these things. And that's just part of the survival instinct. And that's the thing that makes humanity great. It's not our art. It's not our science. It's our ability to kill and destroy everything around us that makes us great. And that's the thing that's going to take us out to the stars, which is just a strange concept that really this is better than any other alternative. This is better than being civilized. This is better than creating you know, literature and art and science and whatnot. We, we have to glorify all these negative characteristics as the saving graces of humanity? I don't know. Well, and it's interesting that Kazi takes the turn of, of judging humans and finding them lacking because of those qualities when some of those qualities are, are what is celebrated in other elements of sci-fi. Uh, what was that story? Uh, the one that, that the, the Star Trek episode with the Gorn was based on. Oh, was it Arena? I'm trying to think of the author where... You know, there, there's a human and a member of, of an alien race that are put into this combat zone, this little contained spear or sphere out in the middle of nowhere. And, and whoever walks away, their race is going to survive and the other one's going to be obliterated because uh, the, the intelligence that puts them in that situation figures, if I let them go to war, they're going to tear up the whole universe. So we may as well just give them, you know, one-on-one -on -one combat for the for for their entire race and then boom to the to the victor goes everything you know where that's a more typical kind of story for sci-fi yeah that's frederick brown by the way yeah that's right that's right yeah the story that we think of as well 
not to digress, not that we ever digress on this show, but the <laughs> short story arena, one thinks it was, or thinks it led to the Star Trek episode very similar with the Gorn, but apparently they were not related in any way, shape, or form. Oh, well, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, there, there are definite parallels there. That's, uh, that's clearly where I was where I was going with that. And, but it's the contrast where Brown's story has, a, like, there's a lot of characters, a lot of human characters that are celebrated for their violence. You know, I'm thinking about characters like Flash Gordon, for example, who is drawn into the battle against the the Emperor Ming because, and, you know, he's heroic because he's warlike. And he's, you know, he, he's capable of taking the battle to others. It's like a barbarian, isn't he? Yeah, at least those are qualities that come out in him. Yeah, the barbarian, or the idea of the barbarian is a common trope in some of the old science fiction stories, going back to John Carter and Barsoom and all that stuff. But still, the glorification of negative characteristics in literature, and continues to this very day, I mean, look at boxing, it's a sport, right? How is that glorifying brutality? Well, it is, it is, right? And another thing that goes along with that that we see is when the culture that is the violent, barbaric type of culture completely underestimates the nonviolent culture's ability to either resist or defend themselves in any way, shape, or form. Right. Right. In this story, we see that at the very end, where Marl says, oh, you can't hate, you can't lie, you can't do all these things, you can't kill, like, like these are bad things, right? And as it turns out, they can do all those things, apparently, because Avila does kill him. Avila shows they can kill. I don't know if she lies, but she at least bends the truth a little bit about what she's doing or what she's going to do to Marl. And I don't know about hate, but still, they, they can do things to defend themselves. And one wonders, having demonstrated that, would Marl and would Earth ever be able to actually carry out its plan against the Martians if they really so chose? Yeah, because he takes their their passivity as weakness. He doesn't see them as having any kind of strength of character or any kind of strength of species. And therefore, they're inconsequential. And again, you know, not to be feared. And and it turns out in the end, well, they are capable of doing things, but, you know, is this perhaps an indication that they have evolved beyond those things? We don't know. You know, we don't have any history of them having been warlike and, and learned a, a better way or anything like that. So there's, there's none of those kind of moralistic judgments that are brought in here. It's just a simple response where she is in the end actually protecting her race and says, you know what? I'm going to make a, a statue of you. <laughs> and he thinks that means she's going to carve something, not literally transform him into one. It's also kind of interesting mentioning that where they may have forgotten how to do these things, or they may have forgotten how to be violent, or if they ever did. Right. It does sort of echo marching morons where they had also forgotten how to be evil, had forgotten how to do all these things. They needed the real estate dude from the 80s to come back and teach them how to, you know, lie and do all those things. Yeah, the idea that the culture either doesn't know how to do them or has forgotten how to do them or simply doesn't care to do them unless it's absolutely necessary. Now, of course, that being said, we've seen many, many science fiction shows about the underdog where, of course, the plucky human race is at a complete disadvantage, somehow manages to rise up and overcome the struggling aliens like Independence Day, things like that, where we're completely outgunned, completely outmatched, but somehow through our ingenuity, the aliens have completely underestimated the human race, and we somehow rise up to 
eventually conquer and win the day. Well, and in most of those stories, we we find a way to beat them in battle. And, and, and then there's a handful of stories. So, for example, something like Independence Day, where it isn't a battle, it's a computer virus that takes down the aliens. Or in something like Signs, where it isn't a battle again there, it turns out that they can't abide our uh, like water that that is is like acid to them, which of course you have to say you know if you're going to be allergic to water, water can kill you. Why the hell are you going to invade a planet that seventy five percent covers in this stuff? Wow. But we digress again. Well, and War of the Worlds actually the other one that that comes to mind right away where it seems like everything is bleak for the human race and then it's a a, a different kind of virus you know a biological virus that takes down the aliens. So in a lot of those. You know, that 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 11th hour intervention by some sort of thing, whether it's a a moment of ingenuity or, uh, you know, something as simple as a common virus, you know, that's the only way of overcoming. Otherwise, yeah, it comes back to the same thing, you know, hand to hand combat, beating them out in space in some sort of intergalactic pitch battle. Now, you know, to be fair, right, there's millions of stories written. Well, maybe not millions. Maybe it is millions. Who knows? (laughs) of stories where you've got humans encountering advanced alien races, advanced alien technology, and almost invariably, it's something besides an emotional negative reaction you see depicted in the story, right? We either venerate them, like in Arthur C. Clarke in The Sentinel, it's like, oh my goodness, these ancient cultures and technologies are so cool, we'll never understand it. Authors use the advanced aliens to, um, or to teach how much farther humans have to go, either technologically or socially or morally. Right, a direction in which we could we might evolve, you know, and and that's where a a parallel could be drawn to something like Star Trek, where it's a scientific or a cultural exploration of space, not a military exploration of space. And the implication here is that Marl represents that military arm, and and that's. That's the driving force behind the excursion to Mars, even though he makes reference to that movement that you you made mention of earlier in the episode where there's people back on Earth who are starting to question the the militaristic ways. Yeah, those non-interference pacifists who apparently Amaral treats with as much disdain as he does the entire Martian culture. Yeah, so you know, he is someone who takes by force because that is his way, and he sees it as, you know, he has the capability, so therefore it's his right. And he is at odds with at least some of, of the representation of, of Earth, although that's such a minor blip in the story. It's just sort of an implication that that stuff is out there. Well, a lot of the story is implication and inference. Yeah. In only a few pages, you're inferring a lot of sweeping arcs in the background, you know, though it's it's not made real clear. I, I think we've got it pretty well nailed. I could be totally wrong. Well, let's take a turn at talking about the things that that maybe ice the story, so to speak, in a in a in a time in the past. Well, there's not a lot. You know, to be honest, if you took this story and had not put it on Mars, say, right. and put it some other location in the universe around some other star, some other planet, someplace else in the galaxy. It could just be as contemporary as it is today, right? You change the names around, you change the Imperial Council to something else more modern, but the story really could have taken place three weeks ago, as far as I can tell. Yeah, I mean, actually, the, the element of the society that, that celebrates, you know, not being militaristic 
if in a more contemporary story might play a bigger role or, you know, might actually have a physical presence in this story to show like some sort of, you know, comparison of values that are represented there. But yeah, you know, you're right that, that, that there's a, there's an element of the story where it, it's, it's that holding up the mirror that, that could very much be, you know, that, that that's fa- fairly timeless. Yeah. Aside from that, the whole having it set on Mars, there's not a whole lot that I would say is dated for 1954. There's a little bit of, you know, maybe some traditional gender roles in there where the big, strong earth man goes and marries the Martian female and leaves her behind to suffer in sorrow, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, so there's a little of that going on, but is it really dated? One could argue some of the same stuff happens today, right? I can't really knock it very much for that. Let's take a, a different turn then, and let's talk about where it falls on our, hmm, whoa, what the fuck scale. That is an excellent question. It starts out to me as a little bit of a, hmm, and then a little bit of, whoa, and then at the end, you're, you're like, what the fuck did I just read? I had to go <laughs> back and reread it. So to me, there's elements of all three in there. Yeah, I think the, the, the final climactic scene for me I didn't see it coming. I wasn't supposed to see it coming. It, I was set up not to go there. But when she turns him into a, a, a statue of Onyx, that was a moment where I was like, whoa, no, I did not see that one coming. Yeah, then you almost have to reread the entire story again to go, wait, how did we get to this point? Because nothing in the story indicates that this is where it's going. And in fact, that's exactly what I did. And when I read it the second time through, I got to the same point. And I was like, nope, nothing tipped my hand. Like, there was there was nothing that led me down to the pathway that, that she was going to take that turn on. You know, Dan, it's been a while since we took a walk on the dark side with, uh, with some sci-fi here. You know, it feels like Philip K. Dick's I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream is a is a ways in the back. So you know where I think we should go next. I hear the words Dean Kuntz in your head. Yes, indeed. I, th- I think we need to talk about Alter Boy. That's a, that's a curious little, a very, very dark turn. Until next time, then. Take it easy, everybody. <laughs>